This podcast brought to you by TechSmith. More A3 is software that helps you see things from your customer's point of view, so you can make things that are truly fast, powerful, and easy to use. By BlackBot, making the world a better place by providing technology solutions and support to nonprofit organizations around the world. By OptimalSort, with an elegant user interface, powerful analysis, and outstanding support, OptimalSort can help you run card sorts better than you ever thought possible. By PowerMapper, mapping your site has never been easier. PowerMapper extracts links from each page of your site until it's mapped your entire site, providing you with a complete inventory. By Axure, enabling information architects and user experience professionals to design efficiently, experience their designs, and clearly communicate them, ensuring more useful and usable application. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For other events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. When we look through the lenses of society, how we connect, mobility, how to move, and sustainability, how we consume, we realize that the world has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Service design strategist at IDEO Aradana Goel discusses connections between these emerging trends, design thinking, and service innovation. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. I did not um, attend the conference yesterday, so I don't know if I will be repeating some things or how much we have talked about uh, user-centered design or human factors, as we call at IDEO. But what I am uh, my topic is about today is that when we have very open-ended uh, ch design challenges that we face as designers, what in human factors is useful to us and what else do we need to do as a precursor to uh, innovation? So that is what my talk is about. And I actually don't mind if you want it to be more uh, discussion. So if you have questions within the talk and if you know already what I'm talking about and you would like to know something else, please go ahead and um, interrupt me. So we all are, um, I mean, We've been doing user-centered design for now more than 10 years, so we all believe intrinsically in human-centered design. We all believe that when it comes to design, empathy is key, and we are all in that boat. So I'll be preaching to the choir if I talk more about how you do it and what needs to be done in that case. But I have noticed some changes. In the last decade, we have lived in a world where technology has taken over and all the potentials that the technology has provided us, it has enabled a multitude of connections. We are living in a world of networks. And the change, at, and the change in the world today is at a pace that has never been before. And in my own career, in, that, in this 10 years, I have moved from architecture to urban design to information design, and now I'm doing more service innovation. And I'm pretty much doing design, but the challenges have changed in these 10 years that as my career has progressed from very tangible things that I used to deal with, with to the intangible, from the permanent to the temporal and from very reactive to predictive. So one example um, I'll give you. In my past work, whether it was a health device or um, let's say I was also involved in a library design, there was a problem at hand, people were not going to the library, or, uh, or you were even coming up with a website, 
you have a very clear mental model of what you are doing and the challenge is how do you improve the experience. So you know the constraints within which you are designing. But now, the, recently at IDEO, more and more, I have been dealing with problems with a very open-ended. A company comes to us and says, we are second in the marketplace. How do we become first? How do we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? We are very capable. We can buy any and, any, any and everybody. Who should we buy? Now, when you have no design constraints, where do you look? Where do you really start? So, I mean, when we, when we do any of our work to, to look for inspiration from users to do what we call human factors design, like ethnography, um, user interviews, in-context observations, focus groups, we have done all of these in our, um, in our design, when we face our design challenges. But we have been focused on looking at individuals. I know some, some time back there was this whole debate about should we call them users, should we call them people, should we call them humans? But people have been at the center of what we are talking about. But more and more, um, I have been thinking in terms of the collective. Like, what is, how is really the society changing? So that, this is pretty much the centerpiece of the talk, that when you start going from, how do you start to go from individual to the collective? And this is really important, as I said, when you are thinking about innovative, when you are thinking about 10 years from now, when you are thinking about, okay, I don't want to do this, what next should this company do, or what next do people really need? In that time, you need to even define the context. And to define the context, you can't really ask people what do you need, because they don't know what you are asking about. So in the absence of any mental models, just talking to people and understanding what they need is not good enough. You have to go beyond. And that beyond is what I'm calling col the collective. So if showing empathy to people, at IDEO we've been calling that human factors, and I know everybody has their own um, word for it. So if talking to people empathy is human-centered design, user-centered design, call it what you may, then getting the collective pulse, just for the sake of this presentation, I've called it the trend factors. If it sticks, it sticks, otherwise tomorrow we'll come up with a new name. But really the difference is people to the collective. So just some quick things about what do we mean when we say human factors. We all do that already. We look at the physical context that you are in. When you are designing a product, you look at the physicality of the product itself. Um, what are the cognitive factors, social factors? What are the cultural relationship factors? What are the interdependencies? We, of course, go a lot into emotional factors and just kind of laying out the context within the domain under which you have been asked to innovate. Now let's look at the trend factors, on the other hand. So the three that come to mind and the three that we have been looking at recently is um, what is happening in the society. What, is, what are the technology enablers that are um, coming up? And what are some business trends that are shaping? Now these are not mutually exclusive. They inform each other. So when we talk about society, we are talking about large shifts in cultural landscape. And I'm going to go into some of these trends, not all of them, but some of them, so uh, bear with me. But the societal trends that I'm talking about is how, what is the large shifts in the cultural landscape? What are the uh, behavioral patterns that are happening? We, call, we do uh, something called error analysis. 
where we would uh, look at what is happening today in context with what was happening yesterday or maybe a decade ago or two decades ago and then predict into the future what might happen 10 years from now or I mean if you can at least a little bit predict five years from now I and mean, how much can you project in that case. So what are these patterns of changes that are happening and what are the connections between different domains? Is what is happening in telecommunications industry, how can it affect the financial industry or the healthcare industry? How are they interconnected? Technology has been a very big, um, um, a very fundamental enabler. So it's not like these um, trends did not exist before, or we did not pay attention to trends when we were doing our um, work with, uh, you know, trying to solve a design problem. But it is about how much attention. Today, the amount of enablement that we have from technology, we actually can use it to deepen our understanding of the trends and use it and aggregate that into our designs way more than we have been able to do in the past. That is the fundamental difference now. The technology enabler is the fundamental difference that allows us to look at these trends and extrapolate from them and actually implement in our designs, which was not possible before. And then, of course, what is happening in the technology realm, what is happening in the society, and how, is business, how are businesses changing, evolving with that? What are the new um, revenue models? What is the changing definition of value? Talk a little bit more about that later. And what are the new stakeholder ecosystem that is coming up? So um, I already kind of touched on this, that you know, trends, we have been looking at them, but really the difference, the, what I'm trying to do with this talk is to dial up the contrast here. How much do you look at trends? So in order to really inform design thinking, it's not like one or the other, or one kind of challenge needs one kind of thing, or the other kind of challenge needs more other kind of thing, but it is about really the complementary um, connection between the two. There are human factors. It tells you what to design, who to design for, how to design. It's really, it's really within, if you have a context, it tells you how to design in that context. But what if you don't have a context? How do you set that context? So that is where it's like, it tells you where to look, how to uh, inform your design, and just what is possible. How do you broaden your horizon? So now I'll, we'll just look at some trends. Um, I've kind of listed about three each in three of those categories that we talked about, society, technology, and uh, business. They are by no means exhaustive. I mean, trends are trends. Trends are temporal by the very definition of uh, them being trends. And they actually, um, you, they will keep evolving. But what I have put in this presentation are things that have stayed with me for about a year over the course of three to four design challenges that I have faced. So that means they have a little bit of weight. You know, they're staying with me for some time. But in today's, um, in, in today's very nimble world, one year is like a lifetime. So. I mean, there are way more other trends that we have actually dabbled with, but these are something that we are now repeatedly using in different challenges that we are facing across domains. So I'll start with some um, societal trends, and the first one would like to talk about is the culture of networks. And I'm sure we've been discussing this one. I mean, everybody knows this. We are all on Facebook, and this is actually a snapshot of my Facebook. 
uh, grid view. And, and so what is interesting about them is that the, we are, today we are using this currency of connection. Like really money, like money is, everybody knows money has value. In today's stock market kind of thing, maybe it doesn't have that much value. <laughs> but it does have value, eventually it'll have value. But connections and reputation as a new form of currency, it, it has never been more true than today. So let's see now how that this trend applies and how can we apply it to other things. So this is a financial, uh, just a, something we found on the web, Green Note. So here is this person, this service is allowing students to actually put up their cause, like literally a cause of uh, helping the poor or something in, um, it could be, a cause could be as big as helping the poor. This particular website is making a cause out of your own tuition. So this, so it is mostly for students. You can go online, you can put up your cause, you can say why you should invest in me and invite your friends and families to invest in you. So this is like a, making a, a bank, bank system out of your own community. It's like, you know, we used to have these kitty parties in India where everybody would, like, if you want to buy a house and you have X amount of money, you'll pool with few friends and then you'll start a savings with them. And at the end of 12 months, you will get that kitty so that it's like a savings for you and you go and buy a bank. So this is like taking the financials, a role that has been taken over by organizations. Now you're totally democratizing it. How you are able to do that because this trend has now permeated the psyche of the people. So this is like, this. we are in this particular case, um, how these people are making money is, they are just facilitating this service and they are getting a cut, a little bit, a percentage of cut from the student and from the family members who are giving the loan. Because family members and the friends are feeling good about it because now it is no longer a social thing and there's no stigma in asking for the money back because they're making it very, um, they're kind of formalizing it. The kind of things that we do with each other on a, a daily basis, word of mouth, they're formalizing it and they're making money out of it. Another interesting use of the same trend in a very different way, I'm sure you guys have uh, either participated it or in it or know about it, is uh, the Amex Members Project. So um, now think of a credit card company. Getting, having your own credit card is actually a very individual service. I have a credit card, you have a credit card, maybe all of us at least, at least 50% of us might have a credit card from Amex. But there's no community feeling among us. It's a very individualistic service. But here is a, a corporation, they have a corporate responsibility, most corporations have. They do give out some money for the benefit of the poor with, you know, quote unquote altruism for whatever they have. They have actually created this community out of it through this members project where they ask members to put up these causes, uh, to put up these projects that they would then donate money to. And then they ask different members to vote on it. Then most of the projects get voted out, then 25 remain, and then five remain, and then the one that wins gets 2.5 million donation from Amex. Nothing has gone out of your pocket. It is a very good enhancement of brand by this community building. And they have been able to leverage something that is existing as a trend and as something that has been just part of us now into a really, really good positive brand exercise. 
So the second trend I would like to talk about is um, nomadism. Um, it's, it's really interesting. We, we are all living with it. You know, you all have laptops here. You're all, most of you are probably getting a lot of work done in between uh, the talks. And if the talk is boring, then you are maybe even now, most of you, some people are getting some work done right now. So we do live a nomadic lifestyle. And this nomadic lifestyle, uh, like, it's, not, it's not like the old times, like gypsies, where it was defined by how little you have and how little you carry with you in different places. But um, nomadic, when I talk about nomadic, there's a slight difference. We are talking about it is defined by not what you carry with you, but what you are able to leave behind. Today, with the world of internet, everything is living in the cloud, everything is networked, everything is cloud computing. All my images, all the work that I've ever done is in some archive somewhere. And the fact that there is telephony and Wi-Fi, between the two things, we have pretty much become untethered. We don't need to be attached to anything, which means I can, like, today take a flight to India, pretty much get my work done there without having to pack a suitcase and come back. So I'm not taking anything with me, and it's kind of a host-parasite relationship where I live like a parasite off of any context I might have. So that is what I mean by nomadism. It's just total seamless transitions between contexts. And we are seeing it time, we live it. It's just a matter of sometimes articulating and saying it out loud. Now, how do you apply it? Um, honestly, I think this is a one trend that has not been applied as much as it could have. So on, like, even though we recognize it, and I have used, and IDEO has used it in many projects that we have done, and those things are not out yet, being of a consultant can't talk about that, but I could not find a good example. But this is the closest it gets. There are some traveler-oriented hotel chains that are coming up. Citizen M is one, Yotel is one, there is one Ginger in India that I just recently found out. All these people are redefining luxury for the same nomad, for the same nomad traveler who, like self-service has become our culture. We do everything ourselves. So nobody really wants big, like, stodgy concierge service. What they really want is a very, very well-equipped room at the right place that they want it. So the Citizen M has some, um, like, location is really important. So they have gotten just the right location in some city centers. And they have a hotel in the Schiphol Airport of Amsterdam. And, um, and I think the most of, like, they, most of, they call themselves luxury, but it'll be amazing, uh, and it's luxury by filtration. They have taken away a lot of things that actually cost money and given to the traveler, considering that he is a nomad, just the right amount of things that that person needs. And you can go into detail. The point is I don't want to talk too much about it. I wasn't really impressed so much by it, but the concept is way more uh, impressive in this case than the implementation of it. So the third one I would like to talk about is um, conscientious consumption. And um, we've been joking within our teams at IDEOS, uh, some people call it conscious consumption, and some people call it conscientious consumption. English is my second language, so you take your pick, whichever works. Um, so, of course, I'm talking about sustainable living, talking about how much we consume and how conscious we are about what we consume. 
And also, it's really interesting um, to see, uh, Chris Anderson has also pointed this out in his free article about this economy of abundance. And when we talk about economy of abundance, we are talking really about digital abundance. So there is this digital abundance that we are faced with where filtering becomes a big problem. And on the other hand, just the opposite side of the coin, in physical space, we are really, really um, there's real, real scarcity of resources. Now, this is a very interesting um, kind of thing that we need to balance or maybe actually create some kind of symbiotic relationship and work on it, how one can help the other. Haven't found out a way to do it, just a thought, leaving it with you. Um, but one application and a very successful application is all these this whole culture of hybrid cars that is coming i mean driving is something that we all do we need to do for the kind of living that is now uh, prevalent that we are living in this world um, but prius has been particularly um, successful in not only creating this new behavior, this new behavior of being giving, having so much direct information about your own footprint and using the information to actually change your behavior. So they are using information aggregation and information mining to change your behavior and totally create a new behavior. And they have done it in a way that it has become a personal brand. I mean, people want to tell you that you, they own a Prius because it's a statement that they are making. So this is a very successful use of this um, um, one trend that is very prevalent. I mean, they do say green is the new black. So the next, uh, so we talked about three of them. We talked about uh, conscientious consumption, we talked about nomadism, and we talked about um, the culture of uh, networks. So that was about just cultural, like larger cultural trends. Now I would like to talk a little bit about uh, technology enablers. There are many of them. I've just picked three for here. So the first one um, is platform approach. The, you'd, uh, I'm sure it has happened to you because there, I cannot even count the number of times all clients have told us at one point, of the, at one point or the other, I want the iPhone of this or I want the iPod of this. Uh, whatever they are doing, they might be actually asking us to design an insurance package, like health insurance package, and they'll say, can you make that iPod of the health insurance package? So they, everybody is trying to look for one killer application. And here's the news for you, there isn't one. iPod or iPhone, they are not successful because they're one killer application. They are successful because they have followed a platform approach. They have, they have recognized that we live a very complex life. They can never figure out exactly, they cannot pin us down. They cannot tell us what we want. So what, all they can do is they can figure out a platform of stuff that, they, that can help us in one mode of our life or other, and then provide us with that platform so that we can pick and choose flexibly what we want out of this brand or out of this service or out of this kind of suite of products. So of course, uh, Great example is um, iPhone itself. And the, and the way that the iPhone is totally, it's, of course it has changed the user interface paradigm. All of a sudden everybody knows all the features in their phones. That's great because nobody knew that earlier. But it has fundamentally changed the paradigm of what, uh, like one, f one size does not fit all. 
We, we are going to give you a phone that works very well. We are going to give you a user interface, a user experience that is fundamentally solid. And we are going to give you some applications that we know most of you use. But here is how you create the other applications. Go on, create it for yourself, and, you know, and create your own phone for yourself. There's a, there's a level of customization. There's a level of control. There's a level of personalization that is uh, really interesting. And technology is there. And they have shown us the way. The next related one, but it just takes it to the next level, is adaptive services. Um, by adaptive services, I'm talking about, and we are doing a lot more work these days in trying to design these. And it has been a battle to have clients understand what it means or even intrinsically change their capabilities to deliver on this. What we're talking about here is services that, as and how you use them, they know about you, they understand you, and then they evolve with you. So they very fundamentally become, they customize over time, and they fundamentally become you. So there is almost to the level that this is a new paradigm of loyalty. Again, could not come up with an example which was beyond the regular ones of Netflix and Amazon, and we know how they do it, and it's kind of an old, cliched example. But we have been experimenting with adaptive services in the, in, um, in the world of especially uh, media entertainment and telecommunication, and again, can't really talk too much about it, but this is a very, very powerful um, trend that we should all hold on to and try to apply as much as we can, because the technology is there. The applications are not there yet. So uh, the next one is, um, again, I don't associate with it so much, but this constant, anytime, anywhere, multi-channel conversations. And it kind of almost gives away my age, the fact that I don't Twitter all the time, or I don't change my Facebook um, um, status very often, or I do only when I have time, and it's not something part of my daily routine, literally gives, gives away my age. But the new generation that is coming up, they live in this multi-channel, totally seamless, totally ubiquitous, totally like all the time present, if you want to be, uh, age. And in that age, some, some people, in fact, uh, quite a few of them, gratifyingly, quite a few corporations and service companies have actually caught on to that, and they are now defining a totally new paradigm for customer service. How do you deliver customer service? We have very great examples. Zappos is a great, great example, in not only one way, in a number of ways. I used uh, Zappos here as an example because it, it twitters at a number of levels. The CEO twitters, and everybody apparently responds and is very interested in what the CEO is doing. Then all the employees of Zappos, they have their account, and they Twitter. And then the community of Zappos customers also Twitter, and there's this whole Twittering community that is created. It's really, really interesting phenomena. Again, positive brand. The communication keeps going. It not only, so it is not like one of those 1-800 numbers where you call only if you have a problem. So it is now taking a total negative space, 
which was troubleshooting. Troubleshooting, just by definition, has this negative connotation to it. It is taking a total negative space of customer service and turning it into a positive, into a total positive feedback, not only feedback, it's like a conversation loop. So I'm communicating with you. It's like your conversation with your parents or your spouse. You're communicating, communicating, communicating. Yeah, once I have a problem, which is fine, like once you have a problem. So they have just changed the whole paradigm with this piece that the technology is now enabling. So um, next set is the business trends. And again, these are all interrelated. So you might be hearing like this could have been a trend for uh, culture of net, like could have been an example for culture of networks as well. It's just like I'm using some example to point out some of these trends, and they're all interrelated. So the next one is um, how are businesses responding? How are we making money out of it? So free is a very interesting uh, trend. And of course, um, I'm referencing Chris Anderson's article a lot here. It's really how um, technology has today enabled us to shift the focus fr uh, from money as the main point of currency to attention, to reputation, to networks. Um, Google is a very, very good example of it. And I think in one of his really, in that Wired article, he talks about how Google is turning attention, which is the main currency, like you can say your eyeball and the, like the links to your pages, you can call that as an attention economy, how that makes Google's basic business model of providing the service, then it provides the service for free, to, uh, sorry, reputation was the first one, then it provides the service totally for free and grabs your attention and uses ad network to support it and to pay for what this, the service that it is providing. So another example, I was just reading um, Economist, uh, just the, the latest one. It talks about new um, paradigm for music industry. This Nokia has recently uh, launched their handset, which is CWM, they call it. It is, comes with music. So basically what it has done is for, for the first one year of this handset, and this is not a cheap handset, it's about $200. So for the first one year, your music downloads are free. And after that one year, you can keep those downloads with you. Now, who's paying for this? So at the onset, like earlier, if the value used to be in handsets, like five years before today, we have bought uh, expensive handsets because handsets were not a commodity. They were just handsets, and people wanted cell phone service. Now, having a cell phone or having a night handset, like it's a totally mature market. So the value has changed from handset to what next? So the next is what is on the handset. What is the experience? And Nokia understands that. So that is why Nokia has changed that value system from the handset. Like nobody wants, like if it was just a handset, people would want it for free. So it can't give it for free. What it has done, it, it has given the value for it. And then the cost is a little bit higher, but it doesn't pinch you because you're getting that experience. And that cost that Nokia is giving to the music industry, to the record labels, and also to the, um, let's say it runs on AT&T, also to the network company. So everybody is making money. Nobody gives you anything without money. So it's not actually free. It is how much degrees away you think you are from paying for it. And that is what the, and people have, this is a great business model um, that is getting perfected these days. 
The next one is um, crowdsourcing. We all have been part of it. Um, different words, distributive co-creation, open innovation. Uh, people use it for different things. People use it for idea generation. People use it for piloting. Um, that Amex members project that I um, talked about was kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, evaluation about which are the right projects or which are not. So people use it in a number of ways. It's a very powerful uh, concept. It is about the power of the collective. I just want to talk about one of, um, one of the examples is how can you use crowdsourcing to leverage the power of the employee? And again, Zappos, I'm one, like Target used to inspire me um, till about six months ago, and now I'm all about Zappos, and then some new thing will have to come up. But in almost every respect, they talk about them being a, sh uh, a service company which happens to sell shoes. I mean, that in itself says something. So there's a whole new paradigm here. So um, the interesting part I want to talk about here is that they have, and I, most of you probably know about this, they have a 156-page manual, a handbook, which is an employee culture handbook, and their rules of how to provide customer service. Now, that, those rules in that handbook are not written by Zappos, uh, by the top-down corporation. They are actually written by the employees themselves. And the employees are so driven, and the way they are trained, apparently right after training, they are given a thousand bucks to leave. Because they only want those people who really believe in Zappos to work for Zappos, and not who are in it for money. I don't know how that works, but it really works. And everybody who's ordered shoes from them knows what I'm talking about. So it is really understanding what are you sitting on. You're sitting on this gold mine of employee power, and how do you use it? How do you source this? Um, Best Buy is another Google example. You guys can Google it and figure out uh, the, how they do it. And um, there's this anecdote, um, a story somebody was telling us um, at IDEO. We're not doing any work with them, but we were talking to them. And they were... Um, the person, VP or CEO of uh, Air New Zealand, he was talking about that they have some uh, employees from Maori tribe, and I might be now misquoting this whole um, anecdote that was told to me, but their employees at the end of the day would always have these, you know, like a happy hour or a dance festival where these Maori tribe employees would all dance. And then slowly, it from their personal gatherings, it that particular dance got elevated to their, um, um, their corporate, like um, once a year corporate uh, picnics or something like that. And then after that, now they have actually their um, home uh, brand that they have, Air New Zealand, they have uh, made that home brand out of that Maori tribe dance. So it is like they found the power of it, they found how much traction it was getting, getting with employees, and they also found that this, that particular is actually a reflection of the people, and they used it to define their brand. And I'm just saying this straight out of anecdote. I don't know how true or not true this is, but it seemed like a very interesting story. People never even think about you know, listening on the other end. We all are so into now user interviews and observations and understanding what the customers do. We sometimes forget to think about how much our employees know, especially the frontline employees, how much do they know about customer service. And the last trend I would like to talk about is um, microtransactions. And I believe we talked about it yesterday in the morning, so I'm sure this is a repetition. Um, but this is about this culture of 
small, but lots of it. And we are able to do small and lots of it because of all the technology enablers that we have. Um, it's particularly interesting when you apply it to emerging markets. Um, I don't know how many of you know about M-Pesa or um, the Grameen Bank. Grameen Bank everybody knows because Mohamed Yunus got a Nobel Prize for it. But it's a very interesting um, case study. It's just micro-lending. You don't have to take huge risks in people. So in emerging markets, I come from India, I know what is this magic number trick. You, if you make even one cent of profit, you multiply it by a billion people, you make a billion dollar. A billion whatever, I'm bad with numbers. But, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Um, billion divided by 100. Um, and so how this, um, how this works is that it is particularly for people in need, it's particularly for villagers, Grameen is a Hindi word for village, so it's particularly for villagers and particularly for women who have no real, like who don't have a bank account uh, usually, who have no, kind, no, no savings, who have nobody to take guarantee of and they have nothing to keep put down as a guarantee. Um, but they have people, they have networks. They have people in the village who will vouch for them and they have their own reputation at stake. So this lending is based on something that they call solidarity lending. Again, you go to the culture of network trend where um, each person who's getting that tiny amount of loan comes with five people. So those five people are just signing on, they're signing on no guarantee, but they are signing on that I am in the network of, let's say I'm there, I'm getting a loan, I am in the network of Aradhana. And if I'm in the network of Aradhana, then every time I default, I have to answer to these five people. And if you know anything about these villages, reputation, your social reputation is all you have to go by. So they have used something that is so inherent in their culture. Now this is not something you would get when you interview somebody and take notes and say, how would you like to get a loan? Why aren't people giving you a loan? What would be the best service, financial service possible that we can give to you? But this is really understanding that network culture that is so permeated in this particular society, the fact that this society runs on numbers, the fact that they might not have individual consumption power, but they have collective consumption power. Now, how do you convert that collective consumption power into some kind of a business model that you can make money on? And believe me, there's lots to be made money on when you look at the bottom of the pyramid uh, part of it. And that's a totally another talk. But just so you know, I'm very passionate about that one. So, um, so we've talked about nine, give or take, about nine trends. And they're all interrelated. And they have some applications. Some are good. Some are not tapped yet. So, at no point am I saying that we only do now trends and there is no need for human factor. Each one has its place and they need to be done complementary. And not only that, they each one has very special, different tools and we have to recognize that. So for human factors, since we're doing it so much, don't have to say to, um, to you guys, but it's like we do user interviews, we do in-context observations, we look at extreme users, we call it focus groups, and at IDEO we call them unfocused group, we prototype, you know, we do all these iterative design exercises and we research. Most of our research is inspirational and evaluative. Go on the other end, trends. So that is how do you really dig and filter into, like, dig deep and filter these trends. There is no formula, really, uh, because 
Honestly, I've only started doing it for the last two years, and I think I'm getting the hang of it in the last one year. But some things that have um, helped are just like, um, just plain media audits. Just read, 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 and read. And don't expect to, like we have to be very comfortable in the area of gray, because, and I'll give you some examples how we started, but just kind of total broaden your horizons, read anything you find interested, put it on a post-it note, look for patterns. And of course, when you have a challenge in mind and you are reading an economist, you pretty much read only the sections that apply to you. Whether you know it or not, you're only looking for things that apply to you. So you might think you're broadening your horizons, you are not, you're looking for a certain thing. So media audits have helped, like we've created huge mood boards, like big foam core with a lot of either post-its or, um, or magazine articles or printouts, and just put it out there and just look at them, just stare. And I haven't been able to convert this into a process, but for now, just putting it up there and staring has worked. Um, the other thing um, uh, we've done uh, is um, error analysis, and I'll talk about it in, one of, in the context of another project. But by error analysis, what I mean is if you find something, then put it in time. I find X. How was this? Uh, 10 years before, or it depends on your challenge. Sometimes your challenge is in one to three year kind of thing. Sometimes it's in 10, 10 year segments. Depends on how far and uh, into past or how far into future you want to look. So by error analysis, like what you find in the present, try to think this is an evolution of what, and then go next. If this was in the past, this is in the future, what do you think, uh, sorry, this is the present, what do you think future can be? So that is all we mean by error analysis. If um, um, the only difference, at least in ideal language, in ideal language, in ideal language, we call it insights. So when we find something that we can turn into design, a research finding that we can turn into design, we call it insights. And usually we write atomic insights: A, B, C, and D. And with error analysis, we have started to write it as a continuum. This is an insight, this is how it happened until recently, this is how it happens now, this is IDEO's prediction of future. So that's what I mean by error analysis. And then the last one is, um, is kind of a exact, um, five minutes left? I spoke a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, the last one is um, expert analysis. So it's like extreme um, users that we do in focus group setting when we get extreme users together. Then on the other hand, um, you do for especially this kind of trends work, um, we've done expert panels where we have gotten people from religion to art to architecture, like talking about broadening their horizon to politics to economics to just get them in one room and just have them tell us what do they know about the, These are the kind of people who write books. So just like this is like a quick, dirty, you know the way we say focus group is quick, dirty prototyping, then this particular piece is like quick, dirty finding trends, and then you again put it on the board and then you stare at it, and then something comes out of it. So um, I wanted to end this discussion with some challenges, but I'm not going to go into deep into it, I'll just give you a snippet into what the challenges were. Um, which uh, these are the three challenges which have led me to put this piece together. 
and I won't go into detail because I don't think we have time. But the one was, how do you design a convert service platform for a very siloed organization? This is a company that provides cell phone service, landline service, TV and media service, and internet service. And they are saying that we work as for profit and loss units. We have different capabilities in these different silos. But we want to now give some services which are at the horizontal level, which are not vertical, which are actually convert service portfolios. So they, they came to us to understand what is convergence, what, how does it help people, what, what do people think convergence is, and what, what can we deliver them. Now really, where do you start? So the next one is, um, again in the mobile industry, company coming to us and saying, I know we, uh, we've done a lot of projects with you, you've given us a lot of services which help people, which you know, differentiate our mobile service to other people's mobile service, but now we want to take it the next step. How do we make mobile phone the top of the wallet? How do we make it into a financial tool? And this is happening in Korea and Japan a lot, just not in America. So, but this, the project was for the US market. There's no existing behavior in America what will inspire, and so they wanted to understand what can we do that will have adoption happen. And not only that, who are our competitors, because we don't even know, is the financial industry our competitor? Is the banks our, like, is financial, or is it the retailer that is, or is it the credit card, like MasterCards and Visa is our competitor? There's, they do not know who even the potential partner is, because the market has still not settled down in this space. So consumers don't have a mental model, the, the stakeholders don't have a mental model, and they want us to differentiate them in this market. So again, where do you start? And the last one is very interesting. It is a financial institution who are talking about designing concepts for the future of retail banking, not tomorrow, not five years from now, but 2015. So they were like, okay, 2015, 2020. They even wanted to go further, and I was like, you know, hold your horses, you can't really do too much because the world changes every year. So what can we do at that time? So that this project fundamentally needed us to even have some envision of what 2015 might look like to even start giving them concepts in that. So I would just leave with the same thing that I started with. When your challenges are so open-ended, you need to go beyond the individuals. Not, don't look, I'm not saying don't look at them, but just go beyond them. And you have to dig deep to create your own context by looking at some of these trends. And again, we have been looking at trends before, but maybe 10%. Now is the time to really dial up that contrast and look at trends more, because now the technology is at a place that if a trend exists, we can use it in the design and do something worthwhile with it and innovate, really. So I'm calling this really a precursor to innovation. Um, thank you.